what has been on my heart for, uh, for today really dovetails nicely with um, a kind of a seminar fill-in-the-blank kind of approach, so I hope it won't be cumbersome for you because my goal today is to just to take a step forward in a, in a thematic vision that we embraced at the beginning of this year that we call Going for the Gold. And the focus of that is in Psalm 19. That's not at the top of your page, but I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 19, and then we'll page over there to Joshua chapter 1. But in Psalm 19, verses, verses um, 7 through 14, we, we spent some time in January this year looking at the promise and the principle in Psalm 19 that God brings to us in Scripture the continuous life-challenging opportunity to expand our horizon of trust in God by not only recognizing that God's Word has this pervasive impact upon all of humanity, whether many recognize it or not, the Word of God is as powerful and as pervasive as what Psalm 19 speaks of, the glory that God has displayed in nature. So Psalm 19 is a fascinating combination, celebration of God's creative splendor with the authority of Scripture. And that comparison uh, so poignantly and powerfully brought together in Psalm 19 is, um, is a, the basis for something that the psalmist mentioned often. We saw it in Psalm 63, and we'll see it in Joshua, and that is this principle of meditating. Now, we hear a word like meditation, and of course today in our culture, uh, words have to be defined pretty carefully. How many of you know that definitions are getting to be very tricky these days in a lot of areas, right? We won't go down those trails. But uh, here's a definition that's very, very important, and that is meditating on God's Word. Now, I'm giving you today, I hope you can relax a little bit. Uh, there's a whole lot more in front of you than we have time to cover, and I know that. But I want to give you the, I want to kind of give you a wrap around an absolutely vital and life-nourishing truth, and that is the truth of meditating in God's Word. Now, I ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 19, and my Bible is open for Psalm 19 in the New International Version, uh, and, and it is very, very significant that the, the writer of the 19th Psalm that conveys to us the pervasive and powerful impact of God's Word dwelling inside of us, that he uses four different illustrations. Psalm 19, verse 7, the commands of the Lord are radiant. First illustration is the, the lighting up, the, the igniting or illuminating of the path of life. And of course, in these four illustrations, he also uses four synonyms, as we saw a few months ago, for the Bible. All of these are really synonymous. They're overlapping. There's some distinction between them, but for the most part, they're dealing with the written form of God's eternally inerrant word that he has placed before us. And as we know through history, God's made it available to us in such an accessible form that 
really, you could say today, when it comes to having access to the Bible, you could say we're living in a time of the embarrassment of riches. The embarrassment of riches. You and I are literally graced by God with so many ways to access the treasure of his, of his eternal gift of the inerrant written word of God. Sure, there's the translation issues and all those things. We understand that. But the, the fact that you can access it, the fact that you can find multiple translations, that you can delve into the, into the various understandings of what's behind the writers is an absolute embarrassment of riches. So these synonyms we have in Psalm 19, 7 are very significant. And that is that the commands of the Lord light up our life, you could say. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, the second part of verse 7, um, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, certain. You can be confident of them. And then look at that 10th and 11th verse of Psalm 19 now. That they are more precious than gold, yea, than much fine gold. They are sweeter than honey, Yes, even than honey from the honeycomb. Characteristic of Hebrew poetry is what they call parallelism, and it's designed to accent the magnitude of the truth. So he repeats, sweeter than honey, yes, even the honeycomb. It's a poetic device, but it's not just for the sake of literary flourish. It's designed to convey to us the magnitude of something we might miss. Now, notice how these two illustrations fit together in an intriguing way, both in terms of helping us see the value of God's Word, but also cultivating in us an appetite for the Word of God. Think of what is contained in that 10th verse, that the, the Word of God that, that you hold a copy of in your hands, and many of us hold in one of these uh, tablets or iPhones or cell phones or in a in 101 other devices and forms, computer screens, you can enlarge it on a large computer screen and zoom in on passages in the text. And all of these things that are, that are now part of the, our life that we can so much take for granted, and yet here we have a classic way to see the value of meditating on God's Word because Psalm 19.10 says, first, that it's more precious than gold, to have that access. Secondly, that it's better than honey and drawing honey from the honeycomb. And this indicates to us, as I would ask you now to page back in your Bible to Joshua chapter 1, uh, Joshua 1.8, and notice that in the 6th to 8th verse of the first chapter of Joshua that this truth of meditating on the Word of God becomes embedded in, uh, in the very foundational elements of, of what was about to happen in the launching of, of a, an entire nation that had been through agonizing defeats and near destruction even after having come out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt 40 years earlier and now on the, on the cusp of entering into that long promise, promised land and engaging in those upcoming great challenges the truth of meditating in God's Word is a foundational principle there. 
Now, if we link it with Psalm 19, we could think of it this way, that, that all of us know when we come to church, you know, there's some things we like and some things we don't like. How many of you found out there's some things you like and some things you don't like? Isn't that right? It's just it's a human nature. And so the Bible tells us that whatever setting we're in in our lives, we're always going to find some things we like and some things we don't like. But when we come to the truth of God's Word in our lives, we are presented with a challenge, and that is every day of our life to make both a quality choice of what I value and a volitional choice of what I will consume or what I will find most attractive, what will cultivate my appetite. Honey from the honeycomb signifies for us that, yes, Almighty God does want you to find enjoyment and pleasure and wonderful array of tastes that are fascinating and enjoyable to you from the Bible. Yes, you, yes, all of us can come to love the Word of God today more than we ever have before. Okay, your Bible's open there in in Joshua 1, and note first at verse 6, would you find Joshua 1, 6, be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Now, Joshua's time presented him with, with a particular challenge, of, of knowing a small section of the Word of God. In his day, he had only a fraction of what we have, and it had the force of law, which, of course, through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we know from Galatians chapter 5 that Christ has completely fulfilled all the requirements of the law so that Romans 8 tells us that the, that the righteous purposes of the law can be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to some legal list of regulations, but understand we've been called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and live out the reality of God's best in our lives. And every step of the way, knowing the grace of God brings forgiveness and cleansing and the opportunity to learn from our mistakes and to grow, and all of that is a part of the wonderful new covenant. But if we just jump way back into that time of Joshua, we can see the, the singular connection between these commands to Joshua and meditating on God's Word today is that really we have more even than an embarrassment of riches, we have such a, a wonderful treasury of the revealed plan and purpose and principles and designs of God that if Joshua was told in verse 8 to meditate on the Word, how much more, how much more would it be to our, our absolute daily benefit to say, yes, Lord, give me a taste more and more and more of that honey from the honeycomb. So I want to give you first, as you see on the sheet, uh, five, uh, four ways to kind of illustrate quickly what the Bible tells us about meditation because the key thing, that the key distinction that has to be made is is that our culture thinks in meditation oftentimes in terms of 
a connection with some form of Eastern mysticism, and oftentimes even common practices that are widely promoted in motivational books and other types of materials, um, still are based on Eastern mysticism, which is a completely contrary view to the biblical view of meditation. I can't draw a bold enough blue line here today between false views of meditating and the biblical view, but that's the purpose of this. So how, how do we do it? In one, in one word, I can say, most, the most significant single word description of this bright, bold, blue line between, between false views of meditation and a biblical view, the one word would be mindful. Mindful. That is, false meditation views are based on mindlessness. They're based on kicking thoughts out of the brain and achieving some state of a vacancy of mind in order to absorb whatever the person believes they're absorbing, whether it's energy from the universe or any other number of, um, of false promises. In other words, on the false side of the ledger, we have a whole array of practices, and I'm not going to take the time to name them all because they're pretty familiar to most people, but their common denominator is kicking your thoughts out of gear, of vacancy of mind. Now, the reason that distinction is important is because the Bible does exactly the opposite. The Bible focuses, aims us toward what? The content, the richness, the sheer volume and magnitude of the thoughts and truths that we are not only invited to think on, but actually commanded to think about. In fact, one text, uh, very quickly, Philippians 4.8, gives us one of these lists. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are of good report, whatsoever things are worthy of praise and virtuous, Philippians 4.8 says, in these powerful, brief phrases, think on these things. So the Bible is directive about biblical meditation. The Bible is specific. Renewing the mind is a wonderful adventure that involves an array of choices, and that's the reason so much is in these notes. But I've only scratched the surface in these seven examples in these notes. Okay, so let's back up and think of the definitions quickly. Four ways to think about uh, what meditation can do for us. Now, the first one I love the most, of course, is feasting on the Word of God. You can just think about that. In Joshua 1.8, let's read that text now. We, we stop there and look at that eighth verse of Joshua, chapter 1. This is where the Lord says to him, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. The scrolls that the scrolls of the law that, that had been entrusted to Joshua, God is saying something fascinating. Don't just read them, Josh. <laughs> Talk about them. Don't just review them. Don't just study them. Let these words be in your mouth. From this starting verse in meditation, I can tell you one of the most fascinating things about this truth in the entire Bible is how directive the Lord is in this matter. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 12, verse 35, 
that the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. The evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth declares, or the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you read it in Joshua 1.8, you read him saying, don't let it depart out of your mouth. Don't see it on there. But dwell, let it dwell in your heart. And, and this gives us a way to think a little bit about the reason we need to feast upon the Word of God. Let's just read this one example here to give us a way to think about it. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be, where? In my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Would you say this part with me? Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. What a wonderful thing to be able to say. And here is this treasure that the Lord's talking about in Joshua 1.8, feasting upon the word of God. Feasting upon the word of God. And that is why today, what I have in mind above all, is that we can grasp that this truth is accessible. Pretty fascinating to realize that the way this came about for Joshua was when Joshua himself faced the most enormous challenge that one can possibly imagine. And so, to think of it in terms of a feast harkens us back to that Psalm 19 honeycomb principle. God gives us an opportunity to taste it. <laughs> what, an, what an amazing thing. That man does not live on bread alone, but out of every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Proverbs 15, 15 tells us that the cheerful heart has a continual feast. In other words, God is inviting us in biblical meditation to savor the flavors of the entire Bible at different points in life. Now, secondly, this is a rather obscure illustration, but the second thing on your sheet, I find it so fascinating. I think it of as, as meditation is getting the kernel out of the shell, getting the kernel out of the shell. Now, by that, we might think of it this way, that in the, in, when Jesus was raised from the dead, God revealed that the power of the good news is like a seed. It's a, he calls it an incorruptible seed. But how does that seed, just as in normal germination, where the seed, where the, the, the chemical Reaction between seed and soil is such that, that the, the life principle within the seed comes forth in the right conditions. Well, we might think of it this way, that the life of Christ is the kernel, the kernel within the shell of what we study in Scripture. So when we read God's Word, we're planting seeds, and we don't know when those seeds are going to germinate, in fact, in Mark 4, Jesus tells 
one part of the parable of the sower to say that the things that God designs to grow, grow in a way that you can't really say how exactly it happened, except that you know that the life principle is in the seed. There is an element of mystery, of course. But when Jesus spoke of his death, burial, and resurrection in John chapter 12, he said, except a corn of wheat or a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. It will bring forth many seeds. So what Jesus is teaching is parallel to Peter's explanation later about the new birth. In 1 Peter 1.23, he said, Our born-again experience to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior means that an eternal seed has been planted in us. What happens when we pray and we ask, "Can Lord, would you come into my life? Would you be Lord of my life? Take me as I am. Bring me into your kingdom. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that apart from the blood of my Savior, I could not, I could never bring about any means of righteousness. So I accept what Christ did on the cross for me. And God the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be the sin offering for me that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And now, Lord, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead and I put my trust in you. What's happening there? God promises in the word in 1 Peter 1.23 that you're being born again by an incorruptible seed, by the living word of God. And so powerful was that truth that Peter accents it on the conclusion of that first chapter of 1 Peter by saying, and this good news, this gospel that's being proclaimed, this is the word of God. The, the, the flower fades, the leaf will wither, but the word of our God stands forever. God's sending his word to us. So when we meditate on a verse of Scripture, just take any one verse. Just take a verse like, a simple verse like John 14, 27. My peace I give to you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. There's a verse we can meditate on. And as we meditate on John 14, 27, we know it's true, our heart knows it's true, but we don't understand how that Amen? But inside of the shell of that scripture is the kernel of life. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And his resurrection life means that any portion of God's word. Oh yeah, even some of those portions we find really hard to understand. We can dwelling upon it, thinking upon it. Writing it on an index card. Putting that verse on on your shaving mirror and for one week reading that verse every morning. There is value in all of these individual exercises. Now, the third way we might describe this is planting the seed, planting the seed in defiance of every other thought. So we might say, and James 1.21 puts it this way, put away all the filth, and evil perversity of James 1.21 says that emphatically. Put away the filthiness and evil that is so prevalent. I read that again the other day and I thought, was James, was James living in 2023? Because <laughs> boy, he, he pinned it, didn't he? 
And how do you do that? How do you deal with the evil? We've talked about it. We all are aware of it. How do you deal with the evil that's so prevalent in our culture today? Well, James 1.21 has the exact, the exact prescription, and it says, put away the evil that is so prevalent, and then do what? Humbly accept the word implanted in you, which is able to bring that salvation to fruition. It's able to save you. It's able to deliver you. So we find this wonderful truth of meditation being, not only do I feast on the word of God, I let the kernel of truth get set in my soul. I plant the seed, though, recognizing recognizing every time I meditate on a verse of Scripture, I recognize there are other thoughts and thought streams that are competing for my attention. So true meditation, as I said, is the opposite of vacant mind. No, true Bible meditation is a focused mind, an intentionality about saying God's word matters to me. Sure, I may not fully understand this passage. Actually, that's one of the great reasons to meditate on the Word of God. I was in a place in Isaiah just recently where I began to realize, stepped back from the book of Isaiah, that the entire background of the Assyrian invasion is crucial to really understand some of Isaiah's obscure prophecies. So we step back and think about who were the Assyrians? Why did they invade Israel? Why were they so brutal? The Assyrians were some of the worst terrorists in all of history. And then we begin to zero in on, okay, when Isaiah speaks of the coming deliverance, and then he puts it in the light of the Messiah's kingdom in the future, then, okay, now that begins to gel for me. That's one of the benefits of staying with a passage, even when it seems strange. Hallelujah. Cherish the word. And then, of course, number four, investing in the treasure chest, Investing in the treasure chest that God has placed in your heart. <laughs> and, and here it's notable that Jesus described a, a disciple learning and growing in his kingdom in Matthew 13, 52. He described it as someone who's been given responsibility over a great state. Like, let's say, the CPA state. And Matthew 13, 52 says that if we're, if we're dwelling on the Word, if we're meditating on God's Word, we become, in a way, like the administrator of an estate because we have at our disposal begins to be modeled after that principle of going from room to room in the kingdom and discovering treasure. Isn't it fun sometimes you ever toured a house that was like maybe way too big for your budget, you know what I mean? But have you ever gone, you ever gone through some really nice palatial place? And Becky and I had this unusual opportunity. We didn't even expect it. It came about in an unusual way. But to, to tour the, um, the famous Biltmore House down in Asheville, North Carolina. Some of you have been there, I'm sure. When we got into the Biltmore House, honest, I honestly said, I don't say this very often, but I said, this absolutely exceeds my expectation. This, it's impossible to describe the Biltmore House to somebody who hasn't been there. But every single you know, hallway and corridor and, and new you know, palatial room that you walk into holds another whole array of amazing 
artifacts and treasures and decor and, and, and obvious intentionality about design. Well, that's a, that's a faint and not a very adequate comparison to the wondrous treasure of going through the palaces of the kingdom of God. Amen? So there's a treasure chest. And what does Colossians 3.16 say? It says that we can dwell, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Now, let's think of these definitions, and again, there are five of them, so it's a lot to pack in, but just let me give it to you quickly. So there's five different words in the Bible that, that describe meditating. And uh, three are from Hebrew, from the Old Testament, two are from Greek. Now, the three from the Hebrew are Hagah, which is pleasant murmuring, or it means to ponder. It means, it can mean to ponder. And so, here in this, um, in the scripture, we read it in the first psalm. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Is that how your book of Psalms opens? Yes, it does. Psalms opens with a warning about not letting the culture squeeze us into its mold. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk, stay in constant interaction with the scornful, with the, with the perverse, with the evil that's in the culture. And, it, and isn't it wonderful? The, the longest book in the Bible, 150 so chapters, a book full of treasures we all love. Many of, I'm sure all of you, if I asked you, we could go around. Many of you have a favorite psalm. Aren't psalms wonderful? And Psalms opens directly addressing the issues we face in our culture, much as James 1.21 did. Blessed is the one who chooses not to walk. Psalm 1 begins on a negative. Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, I take from that, we know the Lord Jesus said in John 17, I don't pray, Father, you take them out of the world, but that you leave them in the world. He's not talking about world avoidance here, is he? He's talking about, about knowing who you are in a corrupt world and having the inner equipment to be able to live out your walk with God. And so he says, but... He is blessed who meditates in the word of God day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth fruit in its season. And that word meditate in Psalm 1 means to ponder, to, to dwell upon it. And I think it's notable a, a parallel between Joshua 1 and Psalm 1 is this commonality that we might turn into a simple question. And that is, when is the best time? What's really a, what's an ideal time for us to savor and dwell upon passage of Scripture? When's the best time to do it? Somebody help me out. When? Night and? Those are two good choices of when to meditate on the Word of God. And Joshua 1 and Psalm 1 gives us that. Now, the second uh, definition is siach in the Hebrew, and it means to converse with oneself aloud. It means to converse with oneself aloud, to contemplate, to utter, to 
declarer. And uh, David uses that word in parts of Psalm 119 and verse 23. He uses that phrase, that meaning of contemplating, and it can include even speaking aloud the word. We know in the example of many places in Scripture, it was common in the culture of that day for any reading to be done aloud. People didn't tend to sit and read quietly. They often read aloud. And that simple act can add to our time of meditating. Then there's the Hebrew word higayon, the Hebrew, and that next one is a musical notation. It, it's, again, a murmuring sound, and that's the one we find in Psalm 19, that let the words of my mouth and the and the higayon, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable to you. And it implies even musically bringing. Now, that's another wonderful benefit is that we can actually sing in meditating on the word. Then there is the fourth one is the word melatao. It's the Greek word. It means to carefully revolve around in the mind, to practice, to cultivate, or, and I think this is kind of interesting, or to muse. Now think about to dwell upon a passage of Scripture. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, this is a key part, challenges a pastor. Do not neglect the public reading of the Word of God Neglect your own soul, Timothy. Together on a parallel track, may the, may the congregation and may a pastor or any pastoral leader, anyone in any leadership role it would apply to, may that person know the word of God is your greatest resource. And that the word of God is not to just be used as a talisman or a, a kind of a brief departure point for what you may want to say, but that the Word of God itself, in its form, in its, in its compl com completeness, in the vast array of topics it addresses, that the Word of God is an inexhaustible treasure. And so he tells Timothy to dwell upon it, and he uses the word muse, to cultivate or to muse, M-U-S-E. I was jogging with a friend of mine in Pensacola, Florida many years ago. Why this stuck in my mind, I don't know. But we were jogging, and we got through jogging, we were, we were, and we got to talking about meditating on the Word. And, and my friend, Steve Lemoyne, from, uh, from Cajun Country in Louisiana, he said, Joe, he said, do you ever think about the fact that muse, that to muse on something, is the opposite of amuse? <laughs> and I said, you know, the opposite of muse is amuse. And we can draw a simple fact from that, that God's not interested in our amusement. He's interested in our musing in the right direction. Amen. And then logizomai, the fifth one, the next one on your sheet is uh, to consider, to think, calculate, evaluate, or reflect upon. And that's the one that I mentioned to you when Paul said in Philippians 4, think on these things. Could you say that aloud with me right now? Think on these things things. So when we put this together, I think, what we, I think what we can see then is that just this first part, the second section or the third section there about resources, I want to just spend a moment on this before we close because here you can see what I want to do is suggest to you 
at least seven categories. I had about ten, but I scaled it down just to make it manageable, get our arms around it. But there are categories of the Bible that I think of as like these rooms in a palace. You can walk through these categories. Now, the first one is the broadest one. So I would say the Word of God in general. Now, what do I mean? There are many things to meditate on. If you ever stop and think, well, how in the world would I, what would I meditate on? Literally, my friend, you know, I don't, I don't suggest this for guidance, of course. We know that. But literally, you could open your Bible to any page. And you could just zero right in. And you could begin. And you could say, well, Pastor, I opened to Ezekiel chapter 13. And, you know, and I'm so happy there. Well, you might be surprised. Right? Sit down for a few minutes at Ezekiel 13 and, and read that and begin to meditate on it. You might really be surprised what begins to percolate in your heart. But you can certainly go to your favorite passages, of course, and begin there. The point I'm making is that the Bible is an inexhaustible resource, not only for reading, not only for promises that we cherish, not only for devotional, not only for preaching, but it is an awesome resource for refreshing, reviving your soul. So this this part of the text I want to give you is, in Psalm 1, he says, meditating day and night, let it not depart from your mouth, you shall be like a tree planted by streams of water. So meditation sharpens discernment, it deepens our understanding, and it equips us for fruitful work. So when I say the word of God in general, you could think of a passage like Acts 20, verse 17, where the Apostle Paul said, As long as I've been among you at Ephesus, through tears and labor, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So I think about these passages of 2 Timothy 3 as describing for us the whole counsel of God. And and just uh, for these fill-in-the-blanks, it could be helpful to know this. There's four categories of all Scripture being given by inspiration of God. What are they? They are doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Now, in the fill in the blanks, let's go through this very quickly. The doctrine part are essential truths for knowing God, essential truths for knowing God and maturing. Secondly, I think of reproof, that word in 2 Timothy 3.16, I think of it like this, and I think it's very helpful. To reproof is a jolt of truth, a jolt of truth that redirects our thinking. Now, now that can happen when we're meditating in the Word of God. You can go to a passage of Scripture you hadn't even thought about in a long time, and you read through that, and you suddenly see something, and it's, it's a bit of a jolt. It's like you say, wow, that's something I need to think about. It redirects the way we look at things. And we can find many examples of that at times when you're, for example, in the middle of a, of a challenging relational or business or, or um, situation in your community, and you suddenly realize that there's a balance of truth and mercy. And sometimes people assume that the only thing a Christian is called to do is to be gentle, meek, mild, quiet, and passive. And that caricature is alive in the land today. But there are many passages that tell us, yes, be kind, certainly be sure that Christ is your be followers of God as dear, dear children and walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. But there are passages that call us to strongly confront evil. 
There are passages that call us to confront either brother, even confrontation in a loving way in the body of Christ when we would rather not confront. There are passages that call us to disciplines that we would rather avoid. And that is why one of the values of Bible meditation is you find those passages in quiet, by quiet streams and in special moments of your life and meditating of God, you hit a jolt of truth and you step back and think, wait a minute, that's a different way to look at this problem. And then finally, correction are instructions and examples that reveal the right path and instruction in righteousness I think of as practical applications of eternal truth. Under precious promises, would you just take these to your heart today and I hope that it'll be really valuable for you. In, in precious promises, Joshua's Example shows us that powerful promises inspire a deeper love. <laughs> right after God had challenged Joshua with a particularly difficult assignment, he then says, and this is how you will to love the Lord your God. A command is a, is a way to inspire love. Children learn to love their parents and their siblings and their family, and they learn to demonstrate love Partly by following commands. Partly by being given wise instruction. The next one is Jesus came to fulfill all of God's promises. That's something that you can, you can count on. Because of the Lord, you can meditate. Think of all the promises that you can meditate on. My, when I was a kid, my, one of my grandmothers had a little thing on her kitchen table that I'll bet many of you have seen when you were a kid and it was this little bread box and it had these little cards in it and it was promises from the bible and i can remember as a little kid every time i went to that grandmother's house which wasn't that often because of the but when i went to texas to see that grandmother i would always go to that table and pull out some promises and read them well it might sound like a small and simple device for kids but it's just as true for adults that the promises of god the vast array of the promises of God can nurture your soul. God's promises, letter C, God's promises are part of the good news he sends to all generations. God's promises test the spiritual condition of his people. In Hebrews 4, it says, they heard good news like we did, but they didn't mix it in faith. God's promises are a test to us. What's the condition of my heart? And finally, faith and patience are enhanced by meditation. And Hebrews says that it's through faith and patience that we will inherit the promises. Now, as we pray together today, we're going to conclude there, and I just want to ask you to think a little bit about the array of choices that God makes available for you to meditate in the Word. And what I'd like to invite you to do is to think about, just in, a, in your own life, the potential of, of a new way of approaching maybe a very familiar Bible in your life and to say, look, these truths are a part of my total experience, but now, Lord, give me in my own heart uh, a, a fresh momentum to let, to let the Word of God be that honeycomb from which I, I draw the sweetness and the nourishment of, of a daily Daily expectant response to God. Uh, in this place, as we bow our heads and pray, we know there are always times that 
people come to a morning gathering like this with something in your life that's a, maybe a problem you wouldn't even want to talk about to someone else. It may feel so painful or difficult. There may be a struggle going on inside of you about some issue. There may be a problem you just can't seem to get your arms around. There may be a need for a prayer for your wellness in your life. We love to have these one-on-one opportunities just to quietly and confidentially pray and share a couple of verses of Scripture just to be an ally to you. We want to welcome you to do that. Please see me or any of these individuals that are in this worship team. Just come to one of us and say, hey, would you pray with me? And you can share as little or as much as you would want to, but we'll find a quiet corner or step off in a quiet room and we'll have a prayer with you. We're so glad that you're here today, and I pray that you might find great joy in the honeycomb that God has for you.